Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Let's bring in our market guest uh, to kick off this hour. Scott Wren is with us, Wells Fargo Management's uh, senior global uh, equity strategist, and he joins us here from Missouri, as he likes to remind me that I like to say. Um, Scott, good to have you here. Uh, remarkable that we're kind of at the end of this year after what a year it's been. What do you make, though, of once again, we continue to see like global equity records taken out one after another? <laughs> Well, Carol, it, it has been a crazy year, and these record highs, you know, the markets have uh, definitely higher than where, where we thought it was going to be at the end of this year. But, you know, Matt mentioned uh, bets on economic recovery, and whether you're looking at uh, commodities, aluminum, um, you know, what, what the 10-year yield is doing, uh, what sectors are performing, industrials, you know, have been a good performer. So these economically sensitive sectors these asset classes that are sensitive to a continuation of the economy have done well. And clearly the market has has counted on additional stimulus from Congress. Who knows, you know, whether we get $2,000 or stick with the 600. I think it's safe to say probably you're going to see even more stimulus from Congress. Um, uh, good virus news, you know, we keep getting good virus news. The market's anticipated that for a long time. So I think it should be no surprise if we have multiple vaccines approved. Wait, good virus news, you mean in terms of the vaccine? Uh, I'm sorry, I mean, good vaccine okay, news, exactly. Okay. I'm sorry, Carol. Yeah, good vaccine news, because certainly the virus news uh, has, has, has not been good. But uh, I think the market has a lot of confidence that there's a very, very bright light at the end of the tunnel. Um, certainly, we feel there's a bright light at the end of the tunnel, and we're looking for, let's say, 8% return in the S&P 500 over the course of 2021. Hmm. Absolutely. There are a lot of good virus stories. Well, here, at least, there are stories of countries looking at different viruses so they can add more to their arsenal, countries speeding up the virus rollout so they can get herd immunity uh, done faster. Of course, we had the Novavax story yesterday, so it looks like um, uh, more companies are going to be offering, uh, are joining the fight offering a, a virus um, vaccine here. Scott, let me ask you what you think about consumers, because Larry Summers wrote an interesting op-ed for us yesterday. He's taking a lot of heat for saying he doesn't think consumers should get $2,000 checks. But I think um, uh, uh, there are a lot of populist politicians out there that would disagree with him, and it's fairly likely. Do you think consumers are really going to sit on that money um, and not go out and spend it? Or are they just waiting for a chance uh, for restaurants to open, for airlines to be safe again, for uh, the sun to come out and make motorcycling more fun. I mean, I feel like if you gave me $2,000, I would have it earmarked for spending pretty quick. Uh, Matt, I think if I had 2000 in my pocket, I probably would spend it. I can guarantee you that my 29-year-old daughter would. Uh, so, you know, whether, you know, $600 doesn't seem like a lot to me. Now, clearly, we're borrowing a lot of money, uh, and that is an issue. But it all comes down, really, to consumer spending. And I think, really, this last round of stimulus that was out there, the direct payments to consumers, a lot of that money was saved. And so, you know, what we want is, is people out there spending money. They need to be confident 
confident. They need to have jobs. But um, now, you know, you see a picture of Times Square and there's not much going on there. But in most parts of the country, I mean, if you're driving around, I don't care if it's a Tuesday afternoon or a Saturday afternoon, uh, there's a ton of traffic. It seems like it's back to about 100 percent. And, you know, the only reason you would even know that there's anything going on in terms of a pandemic is you look over and somebody's riding in their car with a mask on. So I think people want to get out. They want to spend money. They want to go to restaurants and bars. Um, they're going to certainly spend, whether it's $600 or $2,000, uh, they're going to spend some of that money. But, uh, you know, we, we certainly need consumer spending to, to be strong, uh, to keep going, uh, to keep this recovery moving ahead. So, okay, I'm listening to what you're saying, Scott, but there are millions of Americans who, if they get $2,000 or if they get a few hundred dollars a week more, it's really about keeping a roof over their heads and food on the table. And I do wonder when does the equity markets, the financial markets kind of catch up with what's going on, certainly in the United States, you know, in a big swath of our country? Well, Carol, you're exactly right because you know while many people would use that six hundred or two thousand dollars for for discretionary things, not you know just things they want, not things they need. There's a large number of people, as you pointed out. I mean, they're paying rent, they're making a car payment, you know, the essential uh, 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 types of things. So I think that. The market is 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 looking well down the road, not just as to what's going on here uh, in the U.S., but globally as well. Now, have stocks come far uh, and fast? They certainly have. We all know that. But I think that you know, if we get some improving news, uh, we're going to keep going a little bit higher here. We've got a 175 number for the S&P 500 uh, at the end of next year. And if you look at the valuation, if you look at where where interest rates are, if you look up the pent-up uh, type of demand that's out there, those valuations don't look overly stretched. Certainly, they're nothing like March of 2000. So uh, I, think, I think the market is not meaningfully overvalued, but certainly anticipating quite a bit of good news, uh, certainly on the consumer front and the vaccine front. All right, All right Scott, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, guys. Thank Carol, Carol and I both thank you. Scott, it's been a long time. <laughs> Glad we could talk to you today. Scott yeah, Wren of Wells Fargo <laughs> Investment. Happy New Year, Well, Scott. it's good to see you again. Thanks so much for joining us. Let's bring in Matt Hornback. He's Morgan Stanley, head of Global Macro Strategy, joining us uh, on this Tuesday. So, Matt, um, first of all, the Brexit news, we are seeing it play out. There's enthusiasm around the globe, uh, whether it's the Brexit news finally you know, getting resolved, whether it's uh, another round of pandemic relief here in the United States. There's so much, it seems, financial market enthusiasm. Does it make sense to you and does it carry over into 2021 in your view? Thanks, Carol. Yeah, I, I think it does. Um, it, you know, at least for the first several months of, of the year, you know, I think um, the amount of liquidity that central banks are providing to markets, not not just in the U.S., of course, but but outside of the U.S. as well, uh, is going to be pretty uh, formidable. And I think markets are going to have a hard time uh, not incorporating this liquidity uh, in into their prices. So we, we do think that um, risk on is is the trade uh, for the for the first couple of months of, of the year, certainly. And then I think once the vaccine becomes more broadly distributed around the U.S., around the, the rest of the developed world, kind of mid-year, 
um, then I think it becomes more difficult for markets in the second half. How difficult in the second half? So what are you, are you expecting kind of official corrections at that point? Because I do wonder about, like, as you say, you know, there's a point where people say, wait, 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 it's time for us to look at fundamentals again. Maybe this run up isn't justified. So what does the second half look like? Is it just a calming in the financial markets or is it actually kind of, okay, let's, let's reprice everything? Well, I mean, I, I would, I would say consolidation uh, is, is, is what would be, you know, kind of front and center for, for me. I, I think, um, you know, cor- corrections, you know, we have had a couple of, of 10% corrections in, in the S&P 500, uh, you know, over the past several months, but, you know, they, they, they just, they didn't last. Um, and, and so it's really tough, I think, to call corrections during a period of time when liquidity uh, is, is so um, overwhelming. I mean, and, and, you know, again, I think Bitcoin, you can kind of see it, and the price of Bitcoin as well, um, there's so much money being dumped into markets by central banks. Um, investors have to find a place to put it um, and either, you know, you find a place that has some yield and that's tar- hard to do these days, or you're trying to find a place where prices just keep going up and up. And you can see that's that's happening in Bitcoin these days. Uh, at what point is all of this optimism for a vaccine and a V-shaped recovery post-COVID priced in, Matthew. And how do you, you know, when we see something like um, uh, Airbnb going for $100 billion um, during COVID, it was only worth $30 billion before (laughs) COVID. Isn't that the froth that tells you something, uh, you know, assets are overpriced here? Well, I mean, you know, equities are really not my, my ballywick. Um, but what I would say is uh, two things. Number one, you know, markets typically price things in, uh, you know, or almost entirely price things in before they happen. So, you know, if the market has its eye on the demand surge that should occur in services uh, post-vaccine distribution, I'd expect markets to, 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 you know, to price that in by and large uh, before the vaccine is completely distributed. So that would be the first way I'd think about it. The, the second thing I, I would point to is the bond market. Um, you know, one of the reasons I think that yields in the U.S. have not risen more than they have over the past couple of months is because of the liquidity that's being distributed around markets. Now, if all of a sudden you see yields uh, start to rise more quickly, that would that would suggest that liquidity um, is not as ample as it was earlier, um, and that might put uh, you know kind of risky assets in more danger. But at this point, you know you're not really seeing that the ten-year Treasury yield is still below one percent. So um, I, I don't think we're there just yet. But those would be the two things. Uh, the two ways I would think about it. So I got to say, Matt, I love lists. I'm a list maker. And you've got a list of the top 10 surprises for 2021. One that I thought that really stood out for me is you said immigration causes the northern lights to shine the brightest. You're looking at Canada. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we've been bullish on the Canadian dollar for um, a healthy portion of, of 2021. Um, and in our discussions with investors, you know, what we had found, uh, certainly in the middle of the year, it, 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 you know, it, and, but it continued throughout the course of 2020, uh, is, is that people just are, think that there are some structural issues with the Canadian economy. And so, you know, we thought, gosh, wouldn't it be 
uh, wouldn't it be a surprise if, if these structural issues never really reared their heads. Um, but some other issues like immigration actually carried the Canadian dollar even further higher. Um, and so we decided to, to, to throw that into the mix um, for 2021 as, as one of our top 10 surprises. You know, I look through MA Go, the MA Go function on the Bloomberg. I see that there's a bigger premium, Matthew, being paid for developed Asia assets right now. And I see one of your surprises is that developed market liquidity avoids emerging markets and drives a DM asset bubble. Why do you think we're ignoring emerging markets? I mean, they clearly come through this less scathed than everyone else. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, the, the first thing to recognize is is that, you know, the liquidity that's being provided by central banks um, is mostly occurring in developed markets. So it's the developed market central banks like the Fed and the ECB uh, and the Bank of Japan that are providing most of the liquidity that we've been talking about in our research. And so you have to recognize that the liquidity that's being provided, it honestly, it doesn't have to go into risk assets. They could stay in bank deposit accounts, or it could stay in money market funds earning nothing if it wanted to. But, you know, we don't think it wants to do that. We think it wants to go out in in search of yield. And so, you know, uh, this particular surprise that we wrote about just recognizes the fact that, look, the liquidity that's being produced in developed markets could, in fact, stay in developed markets. Um, And so we started to think about, well, what would be a reason why the liquidity would not overflow the borders of developed markets into emerging markets. And ultimately, uh, you know, it came down to the virus and um, the fact that, you know, uh, wintertime for us in the Northern Hemisphere is not uh, is not the same as wintertime in the Southern Hemisphere. And so we just put two and two together and thought, well, maybe if, if the virus has a resurgence in the Southern Hemisphere, that might uh, that might redirect that liquidity Uh, or keep that liquidity in developed markets and and ultimately cause an asset bubble. Matthew, thanks so much for joining us. Matthew Horn back there, Morgan Stanley, Global Head of Macro Strategy. Let's talk a little bit about uh, markets, if we may. Let's get to our guest. James Bevan is with us. He's CCLA Chief Investment Strategist joining us. Um, James, how do you see it? How do you explain some of the trade? I do feel like we are in a market that reacts to headlines pretty quickly, whether they're negative or positive. You kind of get it out there pretty quickly. Indeed. And right now, I would say that there is more appetite to perceive good news and statements made rather than worrying about bad news. And of course, most news stories come with a bit of both. So if you take the Brexit announcement, for example, it's unambiguously good news that there is uh, no no deal. But it's certainly not good news for the services companies that still face an ambiguous future, and in particular financial services. But right now, markets are focusing on the good news. Why do you think the pound isn't rallying more, James? I mean, I would have thought we heard so many forecasts. Um, that were bullish up to 145. And especially on a day when the dollar is weaker once again, I would expect to see more than 135 in sterling. Well, I certainly anticipate we could see 145 by the end of next year, but the pound still has some really quite serious challenges ahead. So the Brexit uh, deal is a step in the right direction, but it most certainly does not provide 
for the full resolution of the problems that the UK faces. So we will likely receive uh, real growth in the UK economy of up, perhaps up to seven percentage points this year. But the UK is still poorly placed in terms of global free trade agreements. It's simply not made the progress that it wished. People say it's going to be easy. Actually, if you look at the regulatory luggage that the UK has to take as part of the Brexit uh, deal, this issue in terms of getting free trade with the US is going to be really tricky. The coronated chicken story isn't going away. And I think that leaves people concerned about the outlook for the UK economy. What about the city, James? You know, we've been talking a lot today about what happens to financial services uh, there. And um, there still hasn't been any kind of equivalency agreement. I don't know if that's going to come even in Q1 2021. Do you see a lot of your uh, do you see a lot of your colleagues moving back to Paris, moving back to Frankfurt, fleeing the city for the continent? Well, I would say that we have seen a general drift of both people and business activities to the Eurozone over the last four years since the 2016 Brexit vote. That was the moment when the chief executives and boards of the major financial companies said, OK, guys, we've got to get ready. We know it's going to happen. We don't know quite when, but let's position now what inevitably will happen. So I don't think it's going to come as a major shock to anybody, but uh, many businesses have already relocated either to Paris or to Frankfurt. Yeah, definitely. That migration, that trend uh, is definitely something we've seen and continues. Hey, James, we're going to leave it there. Thank you so much. James Bevan, he's CCLA Chief Investment Strategist. Have a good new year. We do want to talk about something that has definitely been kind of, I've been obsessed with it a little bit since those Apple headlines about uh, really aggressively, again, moving into the EV market. But we want to get some perspective because there's a lot going on. There has been a lot this past year and a lot maybe in terms of expectations for the EV market come 2021. Mark Kaufman is with us, Ford Motor Global uh, Electrification Director, and he joins us uh, by a Zoom on this Tuesday. Mark, it is so good to have you here with Matt and myself. Matt's a car guy, loves uh, talking about all things car, but I am really interested too uh, as well. So tell me about the Apple news. Let's start there. How significant is that in your view? And it's not something gonna happen tomorrow, but in a few years. Well, Carol, anyone who works in a traditional manufacturer, uh, we're, we're essentially going to uh, expect disruption now from anyone that might be out there. Uh, back, I know a couple of years ago when Dyson uh, was considering getting into the EV business, at that point you realize any consumer product company could come into the space besides a, any startup. So uh, it's, it's very difficult, it's very expensive to the point where, you know, global, um, globally dominant companies like Ford and Volkswagen are getting together, pooling resources. Can you tell us a little bit about your work with uh, the German car makers over here in Wolfsburg? Sure, Matt. Um, scale is so important, especially in the auto business. Um, so in a case when we have a platform, you know, most platforms have a, a range of products that it can be suited off of. Uh, in, the, in the case of our, our partnership with VW, uh, we had the, the European market skews a little bit smaller than the U.S. market. Uh, so we found there was an equal opportunity for both of us, uh, VW, to get a bit more scale off, off their platform. And for Ford, it gave us an opportunity to have a product 
uh, that's going to be slightly uh, smaller than the product off of our dedicated platform that we have within our company. I know one of the big problems here, Mark, is there just aren't enough charging stations. And although we hear from, you know, partnerships like Ionity that they're building them as quick as they can, they're, they're certainly not building them quick enough to be ready for the demand that's coming in the next few years. How do you think that issue gets solved? Matt, that's a, a great question. And we know a combination of both range anxiety and the ability to charge your electric vehicle when you're traveling are top of mind for consumers. Uh, we believe range anxiety, as, a, as an example, our Mustang Mach-E has a range just over 300 miles, uh, is helping on range anxiety. But at the same time, that, that charging infrastructure continues to get built out every year, especially for the high power DC fast chargers. Um, and, and it depends where you're at in the world, though. A lot of consumers we're finding are still charging uh, at their residence if they have that opportunity to, because that certainly adds to the convenience of owning an EV. You know, what's interesting, too, though, is, and I do wonder, you know, Mark, safe to say I think it's, it's, it's fair to kind of respect what Tesla and Elon Musk did that kind of woke up the auto industry and showed that you can, you know, maybe move faster than everybody anticipated when it came to the EV market. And I do wonder, in terms of strategy, when you look at maybe what happens next year, you know, how has kind of the timetable changed dramatically? And could it change even more so, meaning sooner rather than later? Yeah, I would say as I, as I look back at 2020, I know for me, the, the biggest surprise on the year is just how quickly the European market has moved in EV adoption. I would say that was a little bit higher than what we had forecasted at this time last year. Uh, and part of that is you're seeing more products come out. So as that EV offering is expanding from other manufacturers, uh, both Renault and VW having products in the market in 2020 in the European markets, that has accelerated the growth. Uh, and at this point, um, you know, we're seeing in, in both Europe and China, there, there's a clear race for leadership there uh, in the EV space. Mark Hoffman is still with us, Ford Motor Global Electrification Director. And Mark, I wanna hear about some of the products. As you can tell, I'm very close to the Ford family. I've spent a lot of time um, uh, uh, with your boss. Um, I've, Alan Mulally is a very close personal friend of mine. Uh, and I, I wonder what's next. You know, you've got the, um, you've got the Mach-E and you've got this partnership with Volkswagen. What else can you come out with that's gonna blow our minds? Well, first, uh, coming late summer in 21, we've got the Mustang Mach-E GT. So that is the performance version of, of that product. Um, so we're, we're super enthusiastic about that. Um, you've just got fantastic 480 horsepower, 634 foot pounds of instant torque in that EV. So uh, that's gonna delight uh, customers in that space. But even more importantly, uh, with 35 years of commercial vehicle leadership, we've got uh, a transit full battery electric vehicle van coming out. Uh, and that comes in lots of configurations to meet a, a wide breadth of consumer needs. And that's, uh, that's also in 21. In late 22, uh, we're tapping into probably our most iconic nameplate with uh, an F-150 full battery electric vehicle launching. And a lot of people know the F-150 is probably my favorite vehicle of all time. I had the 6.2 liter Raptor uh, version, which was amazing. I love torque. If you could deliver it to me with a battery, I honestly don't care if it comes from internal combustion um, or electric. It sounds like it would work great in uh, a transit as well, which is an amazing product. What about 
your partnership with Volkswagen, though. We talked a little bit about it in the past block, and I'm wondering, can you envision another model? Can you envision deepening that partnership? Because it's such an exciting transatlantic uh, um, a joint venture. Yeah, Matt, Ford, Ford continues to be open to strategic partnerships uh, where they make good sense. Uh, and clearly, you know, that, that first relationship with VW is a start. Uh, we also have uh, equity interest in Rivian. So we've shown that where it makes sense for Ford, we're certainly going to be open to those partnerships. Hey, you know, Mark, I just want to follow up on what you said about the Maki, and I do wonder if you guys are going to allocate more to Europe next year to meet um, some of the and comply with some of the tougher COT standards. Because I, I and I'd love to also get your thoughts about EV in Europe. Does it kind of is it a breakthrough year next year? Yeah, let's start with uh, I, I mentioned the, the growth in Europe this year, especially in in markets. Uh, you've got your big three core markets between uh, Germany, UK, and France that have really accelerated this year. So when we start thinking about that technology adoption curve, you know, there's usually a break point from uh, 2.5% is usually where you start moving into early adopters. And as we're finishing up 2021, all three of those markets now have uh, tipped up to about 5% EV share of industry. So we're going to expect continued growth uh, in, in those markets. Does that mean uh, allocating more Mach-E's? Uh, we're, we're always we're always we're always looking to uh, to get product to customers uh, and obviously uh, having having demand for those products in pool is going to be fantastic for us. So I, one, th I, one thing I want to ask you too, and going back to Tesla for a moment, because they really, like I said, you know, I think everyone would agree that they really shook up the EV market. But I do wonder some of the problems that they've had, quality issues. Does that provide openings? Do you think for some of the established auto players? Yeah, I, I don't think, you know, for anyone who's coming new into the auto space, I think you shouldn't underestimate the, the essentially the value of a good distribution network and the ability to take care of customers. So just maybe to give you some quick U.S. numbers, we have 2,100 uh, EV certified dealers in the U.S. Uh, and we have 10,000 trained service technicians who are capable of dropping batteries off of cars. Uh, unfortunately, accidents happen uh, within the world. And, you know, for the ability to get cars into our service base at Ford and back out, uh, we think is going to be a continued advantage for us. Yeah, I wonder about service bays. I mean, how necessary will they be uh, when you have electric cars? Um, I assume if you do a better job than some rivals at quality, you're going to need fewer repairs. You're also going to need actually fewer people to build them, right? Is it just going to be a less people intensive business car making? Yeah, the, it gives us, I think, a little bit of room to, to have more what we would call top hats or more product configurations off of a platform in a plant. So the, the line length for an electric vehicle uh, is about 30% shorter than a traditional line. So it, it is a little bit more efficient. So in a case where before we might have, uh, you know, just one product at a plant, we might be able to get uh, two products in off of the same platform. So there are some efficiencies uh, that we'll have. And while service patterns certainly change um, with that, we, we still think there's there's going to be good ongoing uh, throughput. Uh, as I said, unfortunately, accidents do happen. So uh, getting customers in and out quickly uh, is going to be important for us. All right. Really fun discussion. Matt's all in on cars, but I just want for the record, Mark, I also am into torque. I'm just going to put it out there. OK, um, Mark, thank you so much. <laughs> Have a great new year. We look forward to talking to you next year. Mark Kaufman, he's Global Electrification Director over at Ford Motor. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud 
or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.